Well, good morning, church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful morning to be in church to worship the Lord in song, uh, in giving, and in the waters of baptism. And as we continue our worship this morning, can we take a few moments to bow in prayer as we prepare our hearts for the word. Uh, Father in heaven, we just want to thank you, Lord, uh, for uh, the beautiful waters of baptism that we got to share together in. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for, for, for Zoe, for James, for Christy. We thank you, Lord, for their testimonies before uh, our body today. I pray, Lord, that it would be an encouragement uh, not just to them, but to all of us here today. And Father, we give you all the glory, honor, and praise for uh, the opportunity to see just how you have and continue to work in and through our lives as we are unified with you uh, in the water, as the waters of baptism picture that in your, your death, your burial, and your resurrection. And you know, Father, this morning as we continue our worship in your word, we pray that you just focus us on you. Remove anything that would get in the way Father, I pray, Lord, that you would guide and lead us, allow your word to be like a seed that's planted and that bears fruit unto righteousness. What we know not teach us this morning, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us. We ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. A party was in full swing aboard a ship. Uh, speeches were being given by the captain, the crew, and also the guests who were on this week-long voyage. Sitting at the front table was uh, a 70-year-old man who was a bit embarrassed, a bit uncomfortable because of all the praise that was being heaped upon him by everyone on the ship. You see, earlier that day, uh, there was a woman early in the morning, a young lady who had fallen overboard, and it was just a couple seconds later that this elderly gentleman was in the cold, dark waters next to her. And so uh, they end up pulling her out, and this man was immediately declared to be an instant hero. On the ship, as it was time now uh, for him to give his speech, the entire ship and the party began to fall to a hush. The man got up from his chair and walked over to the microphone, and in one of the shortest hero speeches ever given, he spoke these words. He said, I just want to know one thing, who pushed me? You know, we all need a good push sometimes, and I'd like to suggest that, especially in trying and troubling times. Uh, this morning, that's why I'd like to invite you to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. It's a, a book that gives us a good push in the right direction when it comes to learning to trust God in troubled and trying times. Uh, the book of Habakkuk can be a difficult one to find. It's just three chapters long. You can find it as the eighth of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. If you're looking for it, you can find it either in your table of contents, take a peek at your neighbors, or you can, as I like to do, find a book that you know well, Matthew, and then go five books back, and there you will find Habakkuk. You find Malachi before um, uh, Matthew, and then Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, and then there is Habakkuk right after Nahum. Um, Habakkuk is a small book, but it's a significant book. Uh, the minor prophets are minor. I have to remind us of this, not because they are less important, but because they are shorter in size. In the book of Habakkuk, there are such powerful principles that we're going to consider today, 
and throughout our study as we consider what it looks like to trust God in trying and troubled times. The focus of our text today, we're going to be in chapter 1 in the first 11 verses, and we're going to take some time to talk about what kind of God we are invited to trust in trying and troubled times. Habakkuk ministers during the, probably during the reign of King Jehoiakim. He reigned between 609 B.C. and 589 B.C. for about 11 years. And he reigned during a time in Israel of great wickedness. Obviously, there was many times where the children of Israel had turned away from the Lord, but the nation of Israel is now on the verge of captivity. They are going to be exiled by the Babylonians uh, between 606 B.C. and 586 B.C. And, and this is a trying, troubled time in Israel's history. Uh, the name Habakkuk literally means uh, embrace or to wrestle with, and it's fitting with this book because Habakkuk wrestles with another, a number of questions that he presents to the Lord that we're going to read about in this dialogue between him and God. He wrestles with questions that some of you may wrestle with in regards to troubled times when you wonder if God is being attentive to your prayers. He asks questions like, God, how long will I cry out to you and you not answer me? He's a prophet who asks God questions like, God, how long will you not intervene and, and you see the wickedness going on around us? Uh, the book of Habakkuk is incredibly relevant to us because it reminds us what it looks like to go on a journey of trusting God in troubled times because while the book begins with a prophet who is worried, it ends with a prophet who is worshiping. It's a book that begins with a prophet who is pouting and ends with a prophet who is praising. And my prayer is as we travel this journey through the book of Habakkuk, you too, whether you're facing some troubled times today, or you may face some troubled times in your, immediate, uh, in your immediate circle that you find yourself in or in the greater world around you, that you would take time to find yourself, if you are worried, that you would find yourself trusting God's sovereignty and worshiping Him as we walk through our text. And so today we're going to ask the question, uh, what kind of God are we invited to trust in troubled would you stand in honor of the reading of the word? Habakkuk chapter 1 will be in the first 11 verses together. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you, shall not and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They will come for violence. Their face are, faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, and they heap upon earthen mounds and seize it, 
Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing the power to his God. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. As we begin our journey through the book of Habakkuk and we consider what it looks like to trust God in troubling times, we're considering this question, what kind of God are we invited to trust in troubled times? What kind of God are we invited to trust in trying times? Especially when you take a look at what Habakkuk is dealing with in his time, in his day, in his age, and we get to read about this dialogue that takes place between a prophet and the Lord. As we dig into our text in verse 1, as we are introduced to the message, the first thing we see is the kind of God we are invited to trust in troubled times is a God who provides a relevant message to his people in times of need. The kind of God we are invited to trust in troubled times is a God who presents to us a message that is relevant to each of us, even to those in the day of Habakkuk, and it's relevant to them in their time of need and in our time of need. In verse 1, the message is introduced. The message is introduced this way. It says, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. It's interesting to note that that the message that Habakkuk gives is unique to him as a prophet. Because you read the other prophets and the means by which they share their message is often the Lord gives them the message and then the message is communicated to the people. The message for Habakkuk is unique because Habakkuk shares his message through a dialogue between him and the Lord. He shares with God his distress and the Lord gives him an answer accordingly. This is a man who begins with fear and frustration in light of the troubled times he lives in. And by the end of the book, as we're going to see, of course, he responds with great faith. And as we continue through our narrative, we see that while his circumstances don't change, his heart does. And so as we travel, as we continue to travel through this, we're going to see, yeah, this is the message that we're reminded of, and the kind of message that is presented is first a burdensome message. It's a message that carries a burden. The text begins and says, the burden which prophet Habakkuk saw. Uh, The word burden there can also uh, be translated message or oracle from God. In our translation here in the New King James, it's translated burden because the root of that Hebrew word can be translated for the verb to carry. And so the idea here is a a prophet of the Lord who's carrying a message that carries a heavy burden, a heavy weight to it. And certainly the, the message that the prophet Habakkuk is declaring to the people and to all is a message of judgment, and certainly it's a heavy burden to carry. Uh, We know that in Israel's history under the reign and rule of Jehoiakim and others as well, the the children of Israel have turned their backs on God. There is spiritual and moral decline that has taken place. And so the message that is going to be declared through this dialogue is a judgment upon the children of Judah, but also their enemies as well. And so, as we begin, we're reminded it's a heavy message to carry. It's a burden that you carry with it. But even in the face of judgment is the hope of future restoration. And so I'd like to pause here for just a moment and remind us that as those who are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that should be all believers, we're reminded that the message that we get to share with a lost world around us is indeed a message that carries a heavy weight to it. 
a message that we should unload and unpack to those who are around us as we seek to follow the example of Christ and seek to save the lost through the gospel of Jesus Christ that is declared as the Lord through the Holy Spirit changes and transforms their lives. And so the message of the gospel is a heavy message to carry because in order to share the good news, we're reminded we have to first present the bad news. Why do you need salvation? Why do you need to be rescued if you don't first understand your need for it? And so as we, are, as ministers of the gospel, share the good news of Christ, we're reminded that we first have to present the bad news that apart from Christ, we stand condemned, deserving of judgment. If you continue on the path that you're on apart from Christ, it's not just marked by destruction and death, physical death, but it's also marked by spiritual death, an eternity without God and his people forever, a hellish existence indeed. And this is a heavy burden that we carry, a message that we are to unload and unpack before a lost and dying world around us and share the good news of Christ with them that as they see their need to be rescued, they'd respond in faith and salvation and trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And so first, this message is a burdensome message. Secondly, it's a prophetic message. It says in the verse 1, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Only three prophets are introduced as in this capacity as the prophet. Obviously, we've got all of the minor prophets and the major prophets, but you see this in Zechariah, Haggai, and of course Habakkuk, but he's a prophet of the Lord. A prophet of the Lord declares the word of the Lord, and he is declaring God's word through this dialogue that he is sharing with the people between him and the Lord. Not only is it a prophetic message that is being introduced, but it is also a personal message that is given. I'd like to suggest the reason we have this book and we have this prophetic message is because it demonstrates that God cared for the prophet Habakkuk. This prophet finds himself distressed and he says, God, why are you inattentive to my prayers? God, why do you seem to respond to my concerns uh, with indifference? And as he presents these questions to the Lord that he's wrestling with, God gives him answers. And the reason God presents it this way is because it shows us that God genuinely cares for the prophet Habakkuk. But not only that, God genuinely cared for the people of Judah. God cared for those who were his own, whom he set apart as a nation unto himself as they were to follow him, seek after him, and be holy as he is holy. And this message is a reminder to them whenever they receive it, whether they find themselves already in captivity or not, to be reminded that God disciplines those he loves. But be reminded that in the midst of justice that he brings even to his own people, divine discipline takes place, but the future hope of restoration is still there. And so in the face of judgment, there is also hope. And we're reminded that the reason this message is given, it's personal to Habakkuk, but it's also personal to the children of Judah, God's chosen people. But it's also personal for you and for me. As I said earlier, if ever you've had those questions like Habakkuk, you've asked, God, why are you inattentive to my prayers? How long shall I cry out to you and you not answer me? If ever you found yourself in a place of distress and you've asked, God, why are you indifferent to the concerns that I present before you? God, I know who you are, holy, righteous, and just, and yes, this is what's happening. The righteous seem to 
seem to suffer and the wicked seem to prosper. Lord, I don't understand it. And we get to see a personal message that's given to each one of us in light of who God is. And so who is God as we are introduced to him in verse 1 as the message is introduced. He's a God who provides a relevant message to his people who find themselves in need. I'd like to conclude verse 1 by saying this is the relevance to you and I. It's not just a personal message and a prophetic message. It is also a relevant message. And I want to give you four reasons why as we continue to introduce this narrative, this dialogue, this prophetic message. The first reason why it's a relevant message to you and I is because it's a message of God and his people. Something that's interesting about it is this, that societies may change. You know, the world we live in is much more different than the world of the later 7th century BC, certainly. The country we live in is very different, but what does not change is the human nature. The reality is the reason for the problems back then are the same reasons for the problems today. It's mankind who needs ultimately the problem of their heart to be solved with, with a transformation that happens in Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord. You take a look at the problems of the world and many people want to solve them in different ways. We talk about education or legislation, making more laws or educating the people. But the reality is, if the problem is the heart of man, the only solution is the heart to be transformed through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so whatever the problem, the solution is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which we need to declare before a lost and dying world around us. And so when you go into the well, I guess you don't go into the voting booth here in Oregon. You send in your, uh, your ballots. As you send in those ballots, be reminded of the sovereignty of God over all of these things. And that God is the one who raises up leaders and takes them down. And also know that all of these leaders may not be the solution. God is. And whoever is in the, in, in the positions of leadership in government, locally, statewide, or, or nationally, we're reminded that God still reigns supreme. And so, first and foremost, we see the reason this is relevant is because we see that it's a message about God and his people. And these people have gone astray and been led astray by their sinful nature. Secondly, it is a message of, of God and his plans. The neat thing about Habakkuk is God reveals his immediate plans to execute divine discipline through the instrument of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. But we know in the greater plan of God, he's got a plan to restore them 70 years later after the Babylonian captivity. They're going to go back. They're going to rebuild. After 586 B.C., the, the temple is destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem are destroyed. But God still has a plan. And 600 years after, there is an even greater plan when Christ the Lord will come from heaven to earth to die on the cross for the sins of humanity, rise in newness of life, and offer salvation as a free gift to anyone and everyone who will receive him as Savior and his Lord. It's a relevant message because it's a message about God and his plans. Thirdly, it's a relevant message because it's a message of God and his promises. In chapter 2, verse 2, if I could jump there real fast, it says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. 
In other words, God, God's word is so valuable. God's word is so powerful that you and I need to take time to write it down. We're reminded that we need to go back to God and recall his promises that are written in his word. That no matter how bad things look, no matter how trying and troubled the circumstances may be, we can continue to put our trust in the Lord. And fourthly, it's a message that's relevant because it's a message of God's providential care over his people. As we walk through the book of Habakkuk, we're reminded that God is sovereign not just over the nations, but he's sovereign over history. And whenever things look bleak, we can continue to trust him. In Acts 17, it says, verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their reappointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. God is sovereign over the nation, sovereign over history, and sovereign over all things. The kind of God we are invited to trust in troubled times, in trying times, is a God who provides us a relevant message in times of need. And my prayer is that you would recognize we live in some troubled times, but we serve a great God who is worth trusting through these troubled times as we put our faith in him. So first, the kind of God we are invited to trust is a God who provides a relevant message to those of us who are in times of need. Secondly, the kind of God we are invited to trust is a God who hears the honest prayers of his people. Uh, in verses 2 to 4, Habakkuk describes his questions to the Lord, his distress expressed in these questions. And he presents them in a very honest manner. If you've ever wanted to ask God some of these questions, you get to see Habakkuk do it for you. And you, then you get to see how the Lord responds and whether or not God is going to strike him dead or not. And you can consider whether or not you're going to present some honest questions to the Lord as well. As we consider these honest questions, we begin in, in, in verse 2, and, and he says this. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? First thing I want you to see is how Habakkuk addresses God. He addresses him as, O Lord. This is the covenant-keeping name of God. You remember when Moses asked God and said after he was sent to tell the Egyptians and to, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, he said, who should I say sent me? And, and the Lord said, I am that I am. Say the great I am has sent you. And so he refers to him as the covenant-keeping God. And I like to suggest the reason he addresses him as O Lord is because Habakkuk knows who's he's, who he's talking to. Habakkuk knows that the Lord God Almighty is holy, righteous, just, and pure. Habakkuk writes as he knows that God is, is all of these things, and as he knows who God is, he takes a look at the iniquity, at the injustice, and at the evil going on in the nation of Judah during this time. And he says, Lord, I don't understand it. And he asks this question. He says, O oh Lord, knowing who you are, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? What Habakkuk wants the Lord to do because he knows who he is, he wants the Lord to intervene. God, bring revival to your people. 
Lord, we know that these people have turned their backs on you, and instead of doing something, sending judgment or disciplining them in some capacity as you've done in the past, Lord, why do you not answer my prayers? And Habakkuk asks, why are you inattentive to my prayers? He knows who the Lord is. Take a look around you. Take a look at the, the nation that we live in. You consider the nation of Israel that was split in two uh, after King Solomon. The, Israel was the northern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom. Israel was exiled under Assyrians in 722 B.C. And, and now the, the southern kingdom of Judah is about to be exiled as well because of their wickedness. You take a look at God's blessing upon this nation. as God has set them apart to himself to be holy as he is holy. And they've turned their backs to him with sin. Take a look at our nation. You want to know a nation that's blessed out of all the countries in the world? There's no other nation that's been blessed as much as our nation in the world today. Think about it economically. Take a look at the superpower of the United States of America and then consider the fact that when you think of the God or bringing up the subject of God and the culture we live in, God every single year seems more marginalized than the last. We live in a nation where it seems as if when you even bring up uh, biblical values, whether it be the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of life, or our ability to exercise our religious freedoms and our Christian freedoms. We live in a, in, in a nation that is irritated by it. Somebody simply prays before a football game like a coach, and then they are looked upon as if they are an irritation, and someone wants to push God out of our sphere of influence in the culture and the world around us. How far we have fallen. How much is there spiritual and moral decline in the nation we live in? The question we might ask the Lord is, is God, when are you sending judgment here? When you take a look at the number of, of children who are, who are murdered within the womb before they even have a chance to be born, you look at the millions and millions who are killed. You take a look at what goes on in the state of Oregon that before a child is born the day after, they can be murdered in the womb the day before. And you might be asking the same question as Habakkuk as you take a look at the evil around you and you say, God, why aren't you doing anything? God, why do you allow the, the wicked to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer? God, why is this the way that it is? If I can share... Uh, one commentator shares this about the relevance of this to our day and age. It says this, the nation's moral fiber, speaking of our nation, is being eaten away by a playboy philosophy that makes personal pleasure the supreme rule of life. Hedonism catches fire while homes crumble. Crime soars while the church sours. Drugs, divorce, debauchery prevail and decency dies. Frivolity dances in the streets. Faith is buried and God we trust has become a meaningless slogan stamped on corroding coins. In such a world of crisis and chaos, Habakkuk speaks with clarity. This little book is as contemporary as the new morning newspaper. We get to see the relevance of this message to the day and age that we live in. And can I ask you a question this morning? When you see the evil going on around us in the world around us, do you respond in apathy? Or do you respond with conviction? Are you burdened by the way that you see things going, that Christians and, and biblical values are an irritation to the culture around us, and you wonder, God, why do the righteous seem to suffer and the wicked seem to prosper? 
You see all the corruption. Take a step into the shoes of Habakkuk, who feels this, who knows who his God is. Takes a look at the, at the nation around him that has turned their backs on God and has asked, Lord, when are you going to intervene and do something? Why are you inattentive to my prayers? But not only are, why are you inattentive to my prayers? Why are you, you indifferent to my concerns as they should be your concerns? In verse, three, in verse 2, it says, Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. During Jehoiakim's reign, it was marked by violence and marked by bloodshed. And Habakkuk says, God, don't you see what I'm seeing? And in verse 3, he says, Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me? What Habakkuk is asking the Lord there is, God, why do you show me the problem, but you don't show me the solution? God, I know you're holy, I know you're righteous, I know you're just, but I, I also don't understand why you don't intervene. I come to you, I pray to you. God, I'm among the righteous and I want to see your glory be defended. And yet you stand silent. And he describes the times that they live in violence in verse 2, iniquity in verse 3, trouble, violence, plundering, and so destruction. Verse 4, he says, this is my conclusion. Because you seem indifferent to the troubles going on around us. And I know that you're a holy, righteous God, but I can't understand why this is being allowed and why you have not intervened. He says, this is the result. The law is powerless. That Hebrew word there can be translated paralyzed. It speaks of a body part that loses its feeling and so it therefore becomes ineffective. People look at the law and they laugh. The law, you see the law and you do what you want. And so the law isn't doing what it was done, created to do to demonstrate the perfection and the righteousness of God. And people, what they do is they turn away from it. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. And justice is, is everywhere. It's prevalent for the wicked surround the righteous. The wicked intimidate the righteous. And here's the conclusion. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. What Habakkuk says here is, in light of your indifference, God, what seems to be happening here is your just statutes seem to be twisted and they become crooked in light of what's happening. And, and I want you to know Habakkuk's heart here. He knows the Lord. He knows his theology. He knows that God is holy, righteous, and just, but he can't figure out why God won't intervene, why God is inattentive to his prayers, and why God is indifferent to his concerns because he feels like, God, you need to act and you need to do it now. Maybe Habakkuk was looking for revival. Maybe Habakkuk was looking for God to do something mighty, but he wasn't expecting what God is going to tell us next. But as we pause here in verses two to four, what kind of God are we invited to trust in troubled times? We're invited to trust a God who hears the honest prayers of his people. I want to invite us this morning to, uh, uh, to consider that and to apply it this way. First, be honest when you pray. Be honest when you pray. I'd like to remind us that sometimes we take a look at the world around us and we talk to people about God and say, I don't know how God is allowing all this to happen. Instead of turning to your neighbor, turn to the Lord and present to him some honest questions. Lord, I'm struggling here. God, I don't understand why you seem inattentive to my prayers and indifferent to my concerns. Take time to present honest prayers to the Lord. What I love about the Psalms 
is the psalmists often present honest prayers before God. But as they present those honest prayers, they do so in humility, recognizing who God is. They ask God the questions, but then they conclude by declaring that they can trust in the Lord. Let me take you to Psalm 13 as an example of this. As we consider the the honest prayer of David, it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Are you allowed to ask God that? God, are you so inattentive to my prayers that you won't listen to me? Are you going to forget me forever? Will, how long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? David says, I've got to be honest, God. It doesn't feel like you're on my side. You don't feel like you're hearing my prayers. You seem to be inattentive and indifferent to my prayers and my concerns. Verse 3, consider and hear me, O Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against them, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Verse 5, here's his conclusion. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Habakkuk begins with distress. (laughs) But he ends with a declaration of praise, knowing who his God is. Can I invite you to be honest in your prayers with the Lord? If you're struggling, if you don't understand how God could allow the things that are happening in your life and in the world around us to happen, be honest in your prayers by recognizing who God is, but also accepting what he gives you in humility as he does so. And so first, be honest in your prayer. Secondly, be persistent when you pray. Uh, You read about Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, how long shall I cry out to you and you not answer me? What Habakkuk is saying is time and time again, I come before you, Lord, and I ask you to intervene, but it seems that you remain silent. When God remains silent, don't leave him, lean into him. And that's what Habakkuk sets a good example for us to do. Even when God may seem silent, Even when you're wondering, God, what are you doing in all of this? I can't make sense of it all. Instead of leaving and fleeing, take time to lean into him and discover more of who he is. Because in in those moments of silence, in those moments where you don't understand God, those are the moments you learn the most about him. Where he's holding you and taking care of you and watching over you and, and, and leading you just one step at a time. We want to know all of the steps ahead. We want to know one, two, three, four, five ahead, but his, his word is a light into our path and a lamp into our feet. You can only see so far ahead of you, and so you trust him one step at a time. Pray persistently. And then thirdly, be specific when you pray. Habakkuk is very specific in regards to the current circumstances he's in, asking God, there's violence, there's iniquity, there's injustice all around us. God, intervene, do something about it. Be specific in your prayers. Uh, A lot of folks these days say, I just don't want to watch the news at all because of all the stuff you see on it. Well, stay up to date in some capacity on the current events. Take time to consider what's going on in the world around you. You don't have to watch 24-hour news cycles. I would advise against it. I mean, it can leave you in a, in a dark place. But as you stay up to date on the current events going on around us, take time to pray and pray specifically that God's will will be done. 
We may not understand how God is going to execute his will and his plans, but we continue to pray consistently and pray specifically. And then fourthly, be concerned when you pray. Habakkuk is actually concerned about the injustice and about the iniquity of the people of God and is concerned for the, for the reputation of God. Can I ask you, are we concerned about the evil, the injustice, the, the iniquity that's going on around us? Are we concerned enough to pray or do we simply respond in apathy or just turn that off because I don't want to hear it? Habakkuk is driven to his knees in prayer, trying to understand the world around him and asking God to do something. And you know what God is doing? He's speaking a message through Habakkuk, through this dialogue between him and Habakkuk. And so uh, be concerned when you pray. And and may I suggest, if you're not concerned, ask God to, to make you concerned. I always like to say this, ask God to break your heart for what breaks his. When you take a look at the world around you and you see all those who are lost, all those who find themselves following false religion and, and, and counterfeit philosophies that lead them astray from the Lord, does your heart break for them? Does your heart break for evil and injustice and wickedness that goes on in the world around us? May our heart break for what breaks God's. And then fifthly, be focused when you pray. Know who you're praying to. The one we pray to is the Lord God Almighty, the sovereign king over heaven and earth who created all things in it. He is the one who rules and reigns. He's the one who appoints leaders and he's the one who removes them. Like the waters, the rivers of water, so are the hearts of those who are kings in the hands of the Lord. He, he, He guides them and leads them in whatever direction he desires. Know who you're praying to. And it reminds us to pray. Uh, Can I encourage us, when's the last time you prayed, can I ask you that, to take time to consider that? How often do you pray and rely on God in prayer? For us as Christians, we have a tendency to, to, to lose how important and valuable prayer is because we forget who we are praying to. You don't, you don't pray because you don't think it's helpful or effective, So take a look at your schedule. Take a look at your time and say, what do I value most? Do I actually value prayer? Because if I did and I really recognized who I was praying to and I believed that God works through the prayers of his people, it would affect my prayer life. It would affect the frequency on how often I pray and it would affect how much I value it and how much others see that I value it as well. So I don't want to just ask you, maybe take some time to ask those you're sitting next to, how's my prayer life? Take time to ask your children who see you and are watching you, how's my prayer life? And they'll often be honest with you. And so who is this God we're invited to trust? He's a God who hears the honest prayers of his people. And then thirdly, he's a God who continues to work even though it's sometimes astonishing and unexpected. God is continuing to work in unexpected and astonishing ways. Have you ever prayed to the Lord and then he answered your prayer and you said, ooh, I don't know why I asked that. Gave you the answer that you weren't expecting. You ever prayed for something? Like, you know, you, you know we prayed for, for, for a son and we got a son. The Lord blessed us with a son. Sometimes at night I wonder, oh boy, I need to remember I prayed for this boy who's keeping us up tonight. 
And so Habakkuk, he, he asked the Lord, when are you going to answer my prayers? God, when are you going to intervene? Why are you allowing the injustice and the evil and the wickedness to go unaccounted for? And the Lord gives him an answer. And this is a bit of a surprise. We won't get into his question to God's answer until next time. But here is the answer, verse, verse 5. It says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. God tells Habakkuk, I'm, gonna, I'm doing something unbelievable. I told you, you're not going to believe it. And he begins to explain it. It's interesting, if you take a look at verse 5 and compare it to verse 3, he uses the same words there. He says, why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? In other words, why do you show me iniquity? And what God says in verse 5, shift your focus. Take your focus off of the iniquity and the injustice and shift your focus onto the way that I'm working and what I am doing. I want you to note that God doesn't give Habakkuk the answer he wants. God doesn't give Habakkuk an explanation. God simply gives him a revelation. And what you and I need when we wonder if our prayers are not being answered and if God is being indifferent to our concerns is we don't need an explanation of why we are facing the problems we are facing. But what we need is a greater revelation of the greatness of who our God is. And God says, look at me. Shift your focus off of that and shift your focus onto me. Look and watch. Shift your focus onto the international developments going on in the nations around you, and you're going to see me at work. You're not going to believe it. It's a bit unexpected. It's a bit astonishing, but take a look at what I am doing. The next verse, verse 6, he says, For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. I can almost imagine Habakkuk just like listening to the Lord. The, the divine silence has been broken. Habakkuk has been crying out to God, God, how long will you turn a, blind, a, a deaf ear to my cry? And then the Lord speaks and he says, look, watch and be astonished. And he says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. What? The Chaldeans? The... Okay, God, we're wicked. We've got our problems. But you want to bring about divine discipline and bring about justice and by an even greater wicked nation? And that's what the Lord said. He says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And, and it's not like God doesn't know, like it was a surprise. Like, oh, Habakkuk, I didn't know he, they were so as wicked as they were. He explains how wicked they are. He says, for indeed, a bitter and hasty nation, a cruel and a quick nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth, impetuous to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Now, if you take a look, think about some nations that take nations that are not theirs right now. If we could think of something going on in the world right now, you think of Russia who has invaded Ukraine and they say, that's mine. It's almost like, you know, you, you take a look at the church and, and, and there are some problems in the church. Maybe there is iniquity, maybe there's sin, maybe there's, there's leaders who are pastors in the church who shouldn't be in that leadership position. And God takes another church that is just completely spiritually bankrupt and morally bankrupt and says, hey, they're, gonna, they're going to come in and they're going to reform some things. No, 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 that doesn't work that way. 
And here you have these wicked nations coming in to execute divine discipline over the children of it. And it's just surprising. A bitter and hasty nation, verse 7, it says, they are terrible and dreadful. God describes just how wicked this nation is. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Everybody knows who they are. Everyone knows what they are known for. Uh, And in verse 8, it really speaks of their effectiveness as well because God's got a plan. It says, their horses are swifter than leopards. You think leopards are fast. You should see their horses. He says, and more fierce than the evening wolves. You know the wolves who are hungry all day and they can't find any food to eat and they get ferocious in the evening and they get ferocious at night? This is who we're talking about here. They are a ferocious, quick, wicked people. It says their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. You know, this shouldn't be a surprise to the children of Israel, the children of Judah, after all, this was declared by Moses in Deuteronomy 28, 49, where it says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. God made a covenant with the children of Israel, right? Deuteronomy 28, he says, If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. If you disobey me and you turn to idols and you don't worship me and you, and you turn from my law and do your own way, God says, literally, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you out of the land and an eagle will swoop in and take you away. And God says, I'm executing divine discipline and divine justice through this wicked nation, the Babylonians. And so it says, as we continue to read, Verse 9, they all come for violence. Oh. Their faces are set like the east when they gather captives like sand. I mean, they're so effective that the number of captives are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Too many to count. Verse 10, they scoff at kings. They laugh when they see other nations and they see the leaders they're in. They laugh at them and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold. And so they take a look at these nations that are fortified cities and they see them and they laugh at them. They said, that's a fortified city? It tells us how they get in. It says, they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. So they build a ramp over it, and they get in, and they conquer them. I mean, they're an incredibly effective nation. And then verse 11, then his mind changes, and, and he transgresses. Now, there are a number of ways to interpret verse 11. I'd suggest the best way to understand it is, is their reason goes away. Their mind changes, their reason goes away, and and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. And so some take a look at this verse and say, you know, it kind of looks like what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, who loses his mind. A man who goes his own way and does his own thing and ascribes his success to himself. Uh, If I could take you to uh, Daniel chapter 4, And read that to you. You might get a picture of this. It says, At the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. This is after he lost his mind. And my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. 
what we get to read about is God is working. Habakkuk says, God, why have you not answered my prayers, God? Why are you indifferent to the injustice? And God says, look, watch. Take a look at the developments internationally and consider the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. I'm actually raising them up to execute as an instrument of divine justice and divine discipline to do to Judah what needs to be done. Now, as we're going to continue to read, we're actually going to learn that God doesn't just execute justice in terms of Judah, but he's going to hold these folks accountable as well. Now, next time we're together, and I encourage you to read ahead, but we're not going to get there today, is Habakkuk's going to say, that doesn't sound like much justice. <laughs> God, you're raising up another wicked nation to execute justice and divine discipline on this nation? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Nevertheless, what we see here is God is working. God is working in astonishing and in unexpected ways. Take a look at the world around you today. Consider the international developments and the way that the world is going today, and you might ask the question, God, why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why is there so much corruption in, in government around the world? God, why do the, the righteous seem to suffer? Why uh, do, do all of this evil continue on? God, as you move nations around and you see the wickedness going on in the world, I just don't understand it. And you know what God says? He says, stand back, watch, and I'm working. What you need is not an explanation. What you need is a greater revelation of who your God is. It's a reminder to be still and know that I am God and to stand in awe and wonder at the greatness of the sovereign God that we worship and that we serve. And so if you are facing troubled times in your own life, or you consider the events going on nationally, locally, or globally, and you find yourself distressed at times. Maybe you're watching those 24-hour news cycles day after day. Take time to be reminded of the revelation of the greatness of the sovereign God that we worship and that we serve. Trust God, who, trust God even when you don't understand how he's working. Can I give us some takeaways today? The first one is this, trust God by embracing his sovereignty over the nations, over history, and over all things. Proverbs 21.1, as we've already quoted, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. God is sovereign over the United States of America. God is sovereign over the nations and the international developments that are going on. And God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over the events going on in your life. You know, he's holding the universe together, and you can believe and trust that he's holding the world together. And while you're sleeping, he's still working. So trust God who is sovereign over the nations, over the world, and over all things. Secondly, trust God by exercising accountability. God says, I'm going to judge Judah. I'm going to bring in the Babylonians to bring about divine discipline. Now, that's not the end of them. There's still hope and there's future restoration. And the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ the Lord, is going to come 600 years later. But you better know that you stand accountable before a holy, righteous God. We're reminded here today that all of us must give an account before the Lord. We'll give an account for what we've done, who we are, the things that we have thought. 
But we're reminded that as we are going to give an account before God, we deserve judgment, wrath, and an eternity without God and his people forever, which is why we need to trust in Christ. We need him to rescue us. We need him to forgive our sins. We need him to provide us life eternal in his name. So take time to exercise accountability. You're a Christian or not. You're a believer or an unbeliever. You will give an account before the Lord. And texts like this remind us that God will ultimately judge all things and all people. And then thirdly, trust God by shifting your focus to his work. Let me remind you, God is working. Can we take some time to consider what God has, is doing and what God has done and what God is doing in the future? If we simply look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, God has been working. You know, when you take a look at the Bible as a whole and you see Habakkuk in the greater scheme of Scripture, you get to see that God had a redemption plan that he was, he was, he was fulfilling from the beginning of time. That when Adam and Eve sinned, he already had a plan, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he was going to, to, from the seed of the woman, would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. So he set apart a man to himself named Abraham, made a covenant with him, land, seed, and blessing, made him into a great nation. That nation didn't always follow the Lord. That nation was split in two, northern and southern kingdom. Now we find the southern kingdom, there's the only thing left, Judah, and they're about to be taken into exile as well. But God still has a plan, and God still has a purpose because the Messiah comes 600 years later, and that's the work that God has done. God the Father sent God the Son from heaven to earth to be born of a virgin, and the reason he was born in a manger was in order to die on a cross for your sins and for mine. God has been working. God is working right now. God is working in the hearts of his people. He's accomplishing his purposes. Before he left, he promised he's coming back again and he's gonna come as a conquering king. But we've got an assignment as we wait for him to go and make disciples to tell other people about Jesus and to take as many people with us to heaven as we share Jesus with a lost world around us. And you better believe God is continuing to work. When you take a look at the national and international developments of nations and how they move around and the population and how it's growing, be reminded of what your assignment and my assignment is, is to make disciples to the ends of the earth. Fourthly, trust God as you follow him one step at a time. And lastly, trust God by seeing the bigger picture. I want to invite you to take a look at the current events and the way things are going. And when you submit your ballot, if you haven't already, it's due Tuesday. Take time to take a step back. And as you submit that ballot, be reminded of God's sovereign care over all things. That regardless of how you or I vote, and even though we have a part to play in the process, God's will will be done. And so let me leave you with this this morning. I want to remind you to see this in light of the bigger picture. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Habakkuk. Habakkuk speaks of the judgment that comes upon Judah and the judgment that comes upon the nations. Ultimately, God will restore Judah, but the reason for that restoration is as the Messiah comes, Jesus Christ, the Lord, is going to do what he's going to do. And so do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Because if you haven't, the invitation is to come to him. 
to come to him this morning and to believe in him, to trust him. And even though you may be in trying and troubled times now or in the future, you can know that he's going to take care of you. If he can take care of our salvation and our soul, how much more can he take care of the daily troubles that we face? Can we pray? Father in heaven, we come before you and we shift our focus. We shift our focus off of our questions and onto the answer to our questions, you. Father, we we shift our focus off of our troubles and onto a greater revelation of you. And in this moment, we, although we find ourselves worried, at times fearful or frustrated, we come to you with great faith and we desire to declare your praises and worship you as we have a greater understanding of who you are. So Lord, when we take a look at the events going on around the world, when we take a look at the events going on in our lives and we feel fearful or stressed or frustrated, Lord, may we look to you and we entrust ourselves and the current events to you, Lord. Give us a peace that transcends all understanding. And Father, as we know folks in our circles of influence who don't know you, motivate us to go out and share the truth of the gospel with them. Father, if there's someone here today who's had an opportunity to hear the the good news that the reason Jesus came from heaven to earth was to die for the sins of humanity, to, to die for their sins. I pray, Father, that they can express this in their hearts or out aloud as I share it. Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I've missed the mark. I've fallen short. I know, God, that there's a God-sized hole in my heart that can only be filled with Christ and a personal relationship with him. And so today I make Jesus my Savior and my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life. I turn from my old way of doing things, and I turn to you. I don't want to live the same way. I want to follow you all the days of my life into eternity. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And thank you for the promise of everlasting life. Father, we praise you. We thank you for these things. And we give you all glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.